Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Welcome back, language professionals from around the world, to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your humble host, and I'm really glad that you're joining me again today. And if this is your first time here today, welcome. I am very glad and grateful that you've decided to take a chance on this podcast. Before we begin, I wanted to share a couple of things with you. First and foremost is that I took a bit of some time off from podcast episodes to attend the American Translators Association Conference that took place this year in Los Angeles, California. If you've never been to one of these, all I have to say is that as an interpreter or a translator, even if we're community interpreters, that you plan on attending next year's conference. And next year's conference will be taking place in Miami, Florida, out of all places. So start saving your money, look into what it's going to cost and what that movement's going to be like for you for next year in October. And hopefully I can get to see you out there. I want to send out a huge shout out to Saida, a school interpreter out in New Mexico doing amazing things in her school district as the only school district interpreter out there. Keep doing amazing things, Saida. And also to Susana, who came up to me during the conference as well and came to let me know that she was a podcast fan. And of course, to everyone else, each and every one of you that did let me know that you are a podcast listener and a podcast fan. It means the world to me to know that you guys are actually out there and enjoying the content. So I appreciate you, all of you. I hope you know that. The other thing I wanted to mention is that I'll be having another live this month taking place on Thursday, October 27th at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time with returning guest Cindy Rope. So if you've not already submitted your question, head on over to the episode notes, click on the link to submit your question, which will be answered directly by Cindy Rote on the live. So write it down. This will take place October 27th at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time over on the YouTube channel. And last, but certainly not least, if you've not already taken the time to rate and review this podcast, I ask that you please take a quick moment. It takes only a couple of seconds to head on over to the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform and give it a rating. I would appreciate a positive rating if you are enjoying this podcast and you've learned or taken a lot from it. It really helps the podcast and uh, being able to show up for others that are looking something similar or for it exactly. So please take a quick moment and show your love and appreciation for the content for the guests that come on here by giving it a positive review. I would really, really appreciate that. Okay, and now on with the show. Before continuing with today's episode, I must advise you that today's content may be a trigger to those that have experienced domestic violence. 
If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, help is available. Please call 1-800-799-7233. Listener discretion is advised. Mohamed Nagy graduated with a bachelor's degree in English language and literature back in 2016 and started his career as a literature teacher right before applying for a position he saw on a small ad in search of interpreters. For the past seven years, he has been working to improve his skills and ascend the ranks to become a very highly rated interpreter. He's worked as a medical interpreter for the last seven years, an RSI United Nations interpreter for three years, and most recently became a court-certified interpreter. Joining us today, all the way from Egypt, please welcome Mohamed Nagy to the show. Mohamed, thank you so much for being here today. It is such a privilege to have you on the show, joining us all the way from where today? Thank you so much, Mary. I'm joining you today from Egypt. Wonderful. It's a privilege to have you. And let's get started with today's conversation and being able to share your story on this platform, uh, beginning with getting to know you a little bit more as the individual, taking us back to your childhood, if you will, and sharing with us where you grew up and what a fond childhood memory is. Of course. Well, um, I started my life here in Egypt. I only spent the first eight years of my life here. Um, and then my family moved to Saudi Arabia. And um, actually, it is there where my um, culture got sculpted. Um, I started to meet a lot of people from different cultures, um, Syrian people, Sudanese people, and of course, the Saudi Arabians. And that actually started to build my language since then. After that, we traveled for a short while to Bahrain and to the UAE, and that introduced me also to new cultures, people in small countries. UAE wasn't that big, too. Um, I got introduced to a lot of friends from a whole different cultures, and it is there where I started to learn my English. Um, my father was an English teacher, and um, he took me with him to the schools that he taught at. Um, I started learning English from British people, from American people. I started to try and acquire the accent, to try and acquire new vocabulary, everyday vocabulary. Um, and um, then I started to um, go into high school. And the problem is that this phase of my life, the high school phase, um, we only, um, it was back in Saudi Arabia again, and I only um, got the um, these cool lessons and everything. It was everything in Arabic, um, and that made me a little bit delayed. And, um, of course, I had a dream of becoming a doctor, a medical doctor, um, but being there in Saudi Arabia didn't qualify me to become a doctor when I came back to college here in Egypt because the grading system is different. And here in Egypt, they required very, very high level of grades, like 100 um, percent. And there were two other tests. there, just like the SATs. But um, it was a little bit difficult for somebody who was getting introduced to them for the first time. So when I went back to Egypt, I went to um, the English language and literature college and I started my journey. You started your journey in languages, but you did not yet think about necessarily applying it into the interpreting field, correct? No, I okay. started my life as being a um, an English language and literature teacher. 
Um, and that actually shaped a lot of my ideology, um, getting introduced to Shakespeare, getting introduced to the um, early writers and Edward Allan Poe and all of these people who were just amazing. They, um, I, I learned a lot from how, to, how they write and I acquired language from them. And in the beginning, we started by studying the Old English. <laughs> um that yes they had in the um in the 15th 16th century wow. and we kept researching and researching until we reached a level where we are everybody in the, in the college that we, we were um you can say that we had a very big literature um background and that's what made me take the decision to be a literature teacher but that didn't last long until I found my first interpretation job I felt that um the connection that I'm going to make between people is going to make me feel better than a teacher. And we'll get to that particular point of your uh, career journey in just a second. For now, I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about, you know, as you're growing up and you're getting immersed into these different cultures and different way of speaking the English language through means of traveling with your father. Was there something that really stood out for you that you potentially maybe even remember to this day as you're traveling, as you're meeting new cultures? Do you remember something, you thinking of something with regards to the different cultures or maybe even just in the way in which the English language is spoken differently, anything like that? Yes, actually, in both English and Arabic. Um, when it comes to Arabic, um, after becoming an interpreter, I got introduced that Arabic has around seven or eight dialects. But I remember that during that time, during uh, my traveling times with my father, I got or I already got introduced to these people. I understood the dialects and I started speaking it. Even while I'm speaking to them, I didn't stick to my Egyptian dialect because sometimes people mock you. Sometimes people don't understand you because um, you, you have our dialect, our Egyptian dialect is a little bit far away from the others. Um, the, um, the West area, the East area of the Gulf area, they all speak like almost the same language, but we ourselves, we speak differently. So I had to reshape my Arabic language in order for me to fit in. And of course, while growing up, I had teachers who are um, British. I noticed that they speak a very good language. They had um, like their, their, their phonetics and their vocals are very different from the Canadian and American teachers that I was introduced to. And I thought, um, why don't I do both? I wanted to speak both dialects. I wanted to speak both accents. And um, I'm trying to do both. Sometimes I speak British, but um, I feel that it's a little bit easier to speak in the American dialect. <laughs> yes. Your father being uh, a, an English uh, professor, you mentioned, right? He was an English instructor. Was there anything that he ever shared with you growing up about languages or about different cultures, anything that you recall that he passed on to you? Yes, he was always highlighting that um, I have to learn English. We have to learn English because um, English is like the number one language in the world and you need to learn it in order for you to be able to um, have a better future. And um, despite that, um, at the house, we were um, Arabic speaking, but he always tried to make us watch movies, watch series, plays, read English books. And um, that at the end shaped a lot in our culture and, and our way of speaking English. Um, it, it is actually, it was the difference maker in the beginning of our lives. And um, 
it was I, I can give him a big credit when it comes to that. That's great. Now, speaking of you only speaking Arabic at home, you know, still be still listening in the background and being immersed into the English language somehow. I have to admit that you don't have a heavy accent when you speak in English. And I have to ask only because there are people that have accents that want to know how to improve their accent, even though having accents is not a bad thing. Having accents is a beautiful thing because, yes. you know, it, it highlights the fact that you speak different languages. Nevertheless, there are people that do want to improve on the accent. And so I, I have to ask you, was there something specifically that you intentionally did in order to improve that accent in the English language? Yes. In the first and second years of college, I wasn't able to speak like that. Um, I was only getting introduced to the, like, the curriculum. It's only in English. So I started to self-study and work a lot of myself to try and improve because the professors were only speaking in English. They never said any Arabic words. Um, some other professors, they, um, they taught us Latin and Latin and English. It was very difficult for me. So I decided to try and work on some things. Um, best thing that worked out for me is watching series that discuss day-to-day -day life, um, like Friends, the series Friends. Um, they're, they're every day at the coffee shop. They are having regular conversations. I'm trying to imitate them. I'm trying to listen to the idioms that they say um, when they go in the morning. Good morning, good afternoon. And these things started to make me be a little bit flexible in my tongue. And then my readings, when I was reading, I, um, I read and I read and I read and I didn't let any word that I didn't understand to guess to slip by. I had to understand every word and try to make a link between it and between an, another Arabic word that would fit in a sentence or in um, a phrase that we use in our day-to-day -day Arabic language. And of course, that um, that goes for all other languages. Um, if somebody else is trying to learn the language. So, um, and the third thing, of course, I had to practice with my friends a lot. Um, at the time, my fiance, she also spoke English in Arabic. We started practicing and practicing. And, um, then I pushed myself into going. I, I worked for three months in uh, Vodafone UK as a customer service. And that made me practice my English every day for 12 hours. And at the end, I realized that practicing is the best thing to do to acquire the language and to acquire an accent and to acquire good vocabulary. And at the end, here I am. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, um, I mean, it's like anything really, if you think about it, right, that you can you can soak in as much information and consume it as much as much as you can. But it's not until you're actually using it or practicing it that makes the true difference with the information you're obtaining. In this case, of course, the information being uh, the, the other language and you can consume it and read it and all that, but you still have to practice it. And so it's the practice that makes the improvement, you know, just keeping the knowledge or absorbing it doesn't necessarily help you. It's, it's almost like you hear, you hear some people say, um, I could understand it well. I just can't speak it. 
right? Because they've consumed all the information. And so they're able to to understand it well. But then when it comes to pronunciation, or speaking it, or it's sounding, you know, like with fluency, it's probably because they're not doing some of the things that that potentially you were doing, right? So um, anyway, thanks for sharing that. I just know that I've, I've received some questions uh, with regards to accents and, you know, that I've, I've tried sharing information on embracing accents, you know, accents uh, are a beautiful thing, uh, but there are people nevertheless that, that do intentionally want to improve. And so, um, you know, that's why and, I, I posed the question. Yes. And I have a linguistic um, um, reply on that. Actually, when there is a little child who's learning the language, you don't feed the child the language. The child learns on their own and they process the language. You don't tell the child, speak the American accent, speak the British accent. They just acquire the language and they practice it. And then at the end, they speak that language. Um, there is no theoretics in this. Just practice. If you practice, you're going to reach where you want. I love it. Thank you so much, Mohammed, for having shared that. Now, let's get to the part of your story in which the paths of what you thought you wanted to do with your degree and what ultimately came to you when when that journey started. And so at this point, take us to the moment in which, um, you know, you you are studying to become an English literature professor, and you realize that there is there is something with regards to the language industry. When did you realize there was a profession that could potentially, you know, need of you? <laughs> Take us to that moment. In college, we only got introduced into written translation. I didn't know that there was other parts um, of translation that that is spoken which is interpretation. Um, after I graduated, um, I started my work as an English teacher. In the beginning, I was an English instructor for uh, people who do not speak English. Um, and then I started teaching in a school um, for um, younger students, um, grade and the higher grades and the lower grades, and it was only literature. During that time, um, I saw a job posting saying that there is an interpreter vacancy and this is going to be for the first time in Egypt. We're opening this. Um, it's going to be an international account between in the United States and Canada. And you're going to be serving calls from hospitals. It's medical. You're going to be serving calls for the police, with courts. Um, I looked up, I looked up interpretation right away and I started thinking, why not? Um, being a, doing this connection between people is going to um, make me happy. Um, of course, it, it was a big decision to make. Um, I was a teacher for around three years at that time. So um, to, to switch myself, to switch my career, to start being an interpreter all of a, all of a sudden, um, I don't know how to phrase it, but it was like, it, it, I didn't think a lot. It was a big decision, but I just went for it. It was something new. It was something that I felt that I wanted to do. And it was very exciting because I told you I dreamt of being a medical doctor before. And once I saw the word medical and interpreter, that's a medical linguistic. Oh, let's do that. A medical linguist. Let's do that. And I hopped in right away. What did you come across when you decide that you're going to do this? And then you're actually introduced into the conversations of what it entails. What what stood out for you? 
um, the new challenge. The new challenge was the biggest highlight of everything. I had to take a decision where um, I'm a 22 years old person who's going to take a very big step. He's going. He, I'm jumping into a very blind spot. I don't know what am I going to find. I don't know what am I going to do. Um, and actually, when I looked up the company, when I looked up the industry itself, I found that it is a very, very big industry where you can develop yourself to become something that is much bigger than just an interpreter. You can be an interpreter with the United Nations. You can be an interpreter with somebody who is a very important figure in a country. Um, I worked and worked and I worked. And of course, right now I can, uh, later we're going to speak about that. But, um, right now I reached the levels where I, which I read before going into the industry. And there was a dream. And it's not only a dream. It was like a goal. And I know that I've have, I haven't achieved a very big part of it, but, um, I, I still have my life in front of me and I'll see where am I going to go. What did you find the most challenging? Because you just mentioned that in school you had one course uh, and it was translation only, but then now you're doing the oral interpretation. And, you know, what did you find most challenging as you started navigating your way through these assignments? Um, the most challenging was that um, I, I, I'm a literature student. I know linguistics, I know English, I know vocabulary, I know grammar. But all of a sudden, you're getting introduced into a whole new booklet of vocabulary, which is the medical terminology. It was around um, 300 pages, and we had to study that within four weeks and we, to get tested in it. And with all the other branches of medicine, um, OBGYN, um, pediatrics, cardiology, pulmonology, everything. You need to study all of that within four weeks and you need to pass a very big exam where nobody in the company knew how that exam will be because we are the first ever batch, the first 16 people to join an interpretation company in Egypt. Um, the trainer didn't know anything. They had an agent from the mother company who um, who the, the company in Egypt acquired, and then they sent somebody to attend the training with us. Um, I, I, around me, there were doctors, there were pharmacists, there were dentists who understood more than me. But of course, I had to change my course. I had to change everything that I knew in order for me to acquire all of that amount of vocabulary and and turn into a medical interpreter, actually. And also adding to that, there was banking terminology, um, police terminology, and the note-taking. Um, this is something else. This is something that uh, maybe we need a, a, a special podcast for it because interpreters need to know how to take notes during interpretation. And actually, I had a very great trainer who um, did wonders with all of us. Um, taking notes now changed into an art because if, if i'm going to explain that i don't know how to explain it but <laughs> taking notes has to be not only taking these notes taking numbers taking addresses taking what they're saying but you have to know what these people are feeling you have to try and deliver if they are in pain what kind of pain is that 
are they sad? Are they feeling down? Are they feeling depressed? Sir, um, your patient is not feeling very well about this conversation. Do you have any other questions to ask? These, All of these things shaped um, how I became after that. And these were very challenging in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine without that uh, proper training, which which most, uh, you know, or if if the majority, if not, um, typically will come from a training background and then jump into some sort of, uh, you know, working, uh, working with a company, working with an agency, typically not not always, of course, uh, come in with that background. So we understand the importance of uh, the note taking aspect, we understand the importance of of understanding the three modes of interpretation. I mean, you know, everything that comes packaged, but like you said, in this opportunity, you you the opportunity basically was presented to you. And it sounds like there were a total of 16 people in the first what the first group, right, the first cohort there to yes. be able to uh, to to begin this journey. What was the feeling amongst everyone? Do do you recall? Was there a lot of anxiety going on, or or what was the feeling? Did you guys ever connect to be able to kind of get a feel for how everybody was feeling and thinking? Yes, actually, we connected a lot in the beginning before we actually hit the calls, um, because people, as I told you, didn't know what are they going into. Um, after becoming the first ever batch, we paved the way for other people, and they always, uh, until now, they're always mentioning our names because um, we are the only ones who did the unknown. We didn't know what is going to happen during the calls. We didn't know how will the calls be. We didn't know if everything is going to go smoothly or not, and um, people and, and people among us were very anxious because I, um, around 100% of us, all of us, we didn't know. Uh, we, we were all in different fields. As I told you, the doctors, the pharmacists, the trainers, the teacher, um, we, we all didn't know what is going to happen after I become an interpreter. Come on, today I'm a doctor, tomorrow I'm, I'm an interpreter, and maybe he's, they're still studying, maybe they're still doing their diplomas, their masters, but um, they're doing the interpretation job as a side job, and actually most of them um, decided to take interpretation as a full-time job. Um, and that was the biggest highlight. The people jumped from something into interpretation all of a sudden, and um, actually, we did great. And, and that's that's one of the things that I'm proud of. Everybody did great. Those people, every, every, every last one of them, they were great. That's so wonderful. Take us into the moment where you obviously passed. <laughs> right. And so and so it, this is um, and correct me, please, if I'm wrong. You're doing it or it's going to be at this point an over the phone interpretation. That's what you guys are jumping into, or is it VRI? It was over the phone in the beginning, and then we um we got introduced to VRI. Got it. And so when you sit down and take that very first call, take us through that moment. What was that like for you? What like was there someone there with you on the other line? It were what was that like for you? Yes, it was like um, an experience for the whole sixteen people to start and taking to start and take calls. Um, for myself, um, I had 
we didn't have a supervisor. She was logging in with us to start and take calls and know what is going to happen and how are they going to um, assess us and how are they going to give us the grades upon the interpretation. Um, so we worked only with like um, a supervisor of the supervisor, and he was he was an interpreter. He attended the training to know how the things are going to happen, and he was only monitoring people from afar. But um, my first my very first call it was actually a um, a labor and delivery call, yeah. and. Uh, yes, and the woman was screaming, and um, it was a word, uh, the epidural, that word the trainer kept telling us all the time, guys, we still are not, we're not still introduced to epidural here in Egypt, but you're going to hear that word a lot. Um, not all of the hospitals use epidurals here, so um, you guys are going to hear that word a lot. And once the call started, um, interpreter, we're going to get the epidural consent from the patient. And the patient is screaming, and her husband is there. And, oh, my God, it was, like, huge for me. Um, I was very anxious. I started to sweat. People around me, like, they were taking calls, some of them taking um, phone company calls and other um, doctor appointments, just minor doctor appointments. But it was a huge call. And, actually, one of my colleagues in her first day, she had a nine-hour labor and delivery call. She stayed on the call for nine hours. Oh, my and, gosh. Yes, and everybody was, we, we were like clapping, come on, you're going to finish it. And we, we didn't go to our breaks on that day. We were watching her interpreting, and we were all astonished. Everybody was doing well, but she was there in her zone, and she was interpreting her, first, her very first call, and it was very difficult. The woman had a very severe case in her delivery, and um, then we all started. Wow. The day ends, and what do you yes. Um, I thought that I can't wait to do that tomorrow again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and it was very enthusiastic. It was very energetic. Um, and, of course, about interpretation, you have to be there all the time. You cannot be distracted. Um, and that actually, in the beginning, caused me a lot of stress and caused me a lot of um, inability to sleep well and inability to wake up well. All of that mental energy that I have to spend every day. Um, I don't want to say that it costed me, but I want to say that if um, if I if people didn't watch themselves while doing that, they are not going to be well. They're not going to be able to wake up and do the job the same way they have to do it. They're not going to be 100% productive. Yeah, and the taking the taking care of yourself part is actually a, a, a topic we're going to get into in just a little bit. But I do you know, want to highlight the fact that you just mentioned something important, which has to do with being there 100%. Now, the the difference in your particular case is that you are over the phone interpreting. So uh, why I highlight this is because let's say, for instance, when we're in person, the emotion of the person, the facial expressions of the person we are interpreting for is present and it's visible to not just uh, the people that are there, but it's visible to us, right? And so we, there's no need to strain to be able to make the connection of what they're actually feeling as they're saying it, because we can see it. When you're over the phone, um, 
it, it takes this extra sensory almost of yours, you know, which is really connecting mentally with what they could potentially be be looking like right now, you know, what are they going through as they're speaking, if they're in pain or in distress or anything like that, you're imagining the scenario in your mind, which that in itself, I, I imagine as you're speaking, as you're trying to convey the message, as you know, you're converting in your mind, I mean, there's all this stuff happening. So I wanted to highlight that because you did mention that just now real quick. And I think that that is important to what we're about to get into right now, which has to do exactly what you just mentioned. Now, in the beginning, it is excitement because it's something new, right? It's something, it's something fresh. And it, and like you said, that, that connection with people and, and the helping people part was definitely there. But being that this was something new for you guys there, um, six, a group of 16 people only, and suddenly are bombarded with all these calls. After perhaps not even a long time, after a short while, this can take a toll on one mentally. Like the first nine hours, you know, like for someone could have been like, wow, I mean, yes, that was super stressful or very difficult, but I got through it. That was great. I'm proud of myself. But if we have something like that as professionals, day in and day out, burnout comes extremely fast. So talk to us about how this began to take a toll on you when you started doing this uh, day after day, day after day? What did you begin to experience? So um, over-the-phone interpretation is not only um, about the everyday flu visit. It's not about, I have a cold, doctor, please treat me. It's not about people who are calling the um, phone companies and making complaints. It's about um, a day with people who has trauma. Um, another day or another call, it's a psychologist office. Some other day in a homeless shelter. Um, another day, people are very, very tired. People are desperate. People are having a lot of problems. And when you interpret for these people, most of the times, most of the people might try and think and might try and say, come on, I'm just taking notes and I'm just delivering language. No, you're not. Most of the time you are in that situation. You're taking that call and somebody is venting out a lot and lot of distress stories to their psychologist. You start to feel something for them. They tell you stories about war. They tell you stories about poverty. They tell you stories about shelters away, very far away from their countries. And that's when you begin to be compassionate. That compassion um, leads to you giving compassion to these people. You start thinking about them. You start before you're going to sleep. You're going to tell yourself, oh, my God, that man lived in a shelter in a refugee camp outside of his country for three or four years, and he's been out there in the rain, his children are sick, he's unable to provide, he's unable to go out of that camp, and all of a sudden right now he's in the United States. Um, and what he's telling you is, I'm having a problem, doctor, he's speaking to his psychologist, I cannot forget what I have. 
I cannot forget my past. I'm still having nightmares about that. So you as an interpreter, you don't only take notes and exchange language between two people. You exchange these feelings. And that started to take a toll after um, I'm not going to be able to try and count the numbers, but it's like um, in the very first month or two, I have met and heard stories of so many different people that made me feel that, oh, I'm very thankful for the life I'm living. These people are really struggling in all the sides of their lives. People who don't have work, people who are not even able to speak the language, and that's the least of their problems. They are unable to communicate with that other person, and you're there to be the, communica the communication tool. So just being there is something that's that has a heavy toll on them too. Um, and of course, after all these stories, it's not one story, it's not two stories. You hear different stories and different struggles and people who lost loved ones, people who are actually going to lose loved ones and you have to tell them that, people who are going to um, be diagnosed with cancer, people who are going to, you, you're going to tell them, you are going to pass away in three months. You're going to pass away in a week. Um, we're sorry. You have to go home and stay among your loved ones because we are unable to help you. All of these things, when you say them, they take a toll on you. Imagine that you in your life or a person in their life, they take the toll of somebody's death or of losing loved ones or trying to travel away from their loved ones. We experience it as individuals once or twice or dozens of times, a dozen times, 12 times during our life. But actually, as an interpreter, I experienced that during the day for not less than 35 times with 35 different people. Wow. I imagine that day after day of taking this all in, it's difficult to unplug. You can say my my workday has ended, but your mental fatigue, I imagine, continues. And you get to the point in your interpreting career in which uh, it does eventually take a toll on you with the a breaking point for you, correct? Share with us the story of when this finally came to to the peak in your career in terms of uh, peak of, of um, emotional distress and the inability to know what to do with it. Walk us through that moment. Let us say that it started out as stress. Um, stress is a part of being mentally, um, having a mental fatigue. Um, experience, everyday experience um, with the same stressful environment, with no resources, with the excessive amount of hours that we had to work. Of course, at that time, we did not get enough pay to only work nine hours and go home and that's enough, we're going to have enough. No, we had to work 15 hours, 20 hours sometimes in order for us to get a good pay. Um, and that made us, of course, have to um, to have to encounter a lot of more calls and a lot of more people. And actually, that um, that I can call secondhand trauma. We started facing trauma from the stories that we're hearing. Some people were able just to um, vent it out, um, forget it completely. Some other people, no. 
they aren't able to do that. And um, that develops. Some people developed into depression and they are unable to forget that. And they're still having um, a lot of thoughts about what happened before. And they're still thinking about it every day. And some other people were able to get help, um, either help from loved ones, help from professionals. And that is actually where we started to try and tell each other um, what we're doing is difficult. Let's speak about it. Let's try and do something. Um, as for myself, um, there was a very, like, it was the highlight of my interpretation career. It was the most difficult call that I've ever encountered. Yes, I have told people that they're going to die. I have told people that their loved ones are going to die. Um, I have told people that they are unable to see their loved ones again because they cannot travel. Um, but this one, actually, it was very difficult. The call came in from a 911 call. And um, the person who was talking on the line was a son of a man. Um, and that boy, he had a gun in his hand and he started the call by saying, I have a gun in my hand and I will kill my father and kill myself because my father is very, very, uh, is doing a lot of domestic violence towards my mother and my sister and myself. And he's very abusive. And I'm not calling you guys because I'm going to kill him or I'm going to kill myself. I'm just calling you to come and clean the mess before my mother and sister come home and see the blood and the bodies on the ground. That is the only reason why I'm I'm telling you this. So the um, the police operator, she, she was very smooth. I was very smooth. I was trying to calm him down, um, relaxed. What is your address? Um, he didn't say what is his address. Of course, his address populated on her system. And she was trying to discuss, so what did he do? What did your father do? Why are you feeling like this? Um, just a couple of minutes, two to three minutes, we heard the police banging on the door. Open the door, it's the police. And all of a sudden, two gunshots were fired, bang, bang. I'm on the phone. The police broke the door. They came in. Operator. We have two dead bodies. And her only response to me was, interpreter, that was all. Thank you. Have a great day. And she hung up. I just laid myself back in the chair. Um, I, I totally forgot that I need to log out or put on a break or something. And the next call rang in. It is auto, auto, um, auto answer. So the calls come automatically in. And it was a call from another company, a telephone company, a guy who was having a dispute for $1. After everything that happened to me, I'm interpreting for a person who actually has no problem in life but $1. That made me soak in tears after I finished that call. I went downstairs and I soaked in tears. And that day, um, before that, I was um, I was only socially smoking. I was uh, smoking hookah. After that day, I started vaping because of the stress that I had. Um, and I was just had a very blunt feeling. I was looking straight forward. People were asking me what happened. I told them uh, a guy just killed himself and killed his father on the phone with me. I don't know what to say. Um, and. It was like, uh, the, the thing is, 
the people who were supervising this, they did not understand that. Mm. If I'm a supervisor right now and I heard that one of my interpreters encountered something like this, I'm going to send them home right away and I'm not going to speak to them about their um, compensation hours. I'm not going to speak to them about their absenteeism. I'm not going to speak to them about their adherence. I'm just going to tell them, go home, get something cold to drink, speak to someone you love, and call me back in the morning and tell me if you're going to be able to come back to work or not. If not, please stay home again. But nobody cared. Nobody told us that uh, it's okay to feel like that. No. Um, come on, you're exceeding your break. You need to come back and take calls right now. So at that time, it started to take a very big toll on me. Um, a lot of other people started seeking therapy. And of course, they have to, they have to tell about everything that was going on during the day some people actually had that um had these calls more than others and i was one of them because as i told you i worked 15 to 20 hours a day um at the end i needed to see somebody um and when i went to the doctor the doctor told me that you do not have depression um the psychologist you, you he had said, depression you thought yes you thought you i thought going. that i had depression i i didn't want to go back to work in the morning I didn't want to interpret the difficult calls. I wanted to rule myself out of the difficult calls. I felt that I was always on edge, always afraid that I might encounter something like that again. Um, there were there were some sometimes where I felt that no, this is not for me. I have to leave. I'm not going to do it anymore. And they told me that um, no, you you are just being compassionate um, over the limit. Um, it's called compassion fatigue. You are providing compassion um, number of, for a number of times that's more than you should do during one day. Some people say that you can provide pe other people with compassion nine times a day and only nine times, not more than that. Other than that, you're going to start to burn out and then you're going to reach compassion fatigue and then you're going to reach um, depression. Some other people say 15 times. Um, like the people who are working in other very stressful places, like the trauma centers, like the psychologists themselves, they have to talk to somebody. They have to deal with the compassion fatigue. And there are a lot of things that can happen and um, that can prevent that or help with it because it's always it always appears. You will always have uh, mood swings. You're going to have detachment. You're going to have um, trouble being productive, insomnia, um, a lot of other physical symptoms, like I've had headaches for days, constant, it never stopped. Once I spoke to the doctor and the doctor started treating me and the doctor started telling me about self-care and started telling me to that I have to take time and sleep well, I have to take time and take days off, I have to dedicate the times where I'm not working only for myself and I have to stay away from any kind of um, emotional or anything that um, might cause a hardship during my time away from work. Um, and um, he, he said that I don't need a, a medication. He told me, don't take medication now. You're going to feel fine if you start to self-care for yourself. If you begin so, that self-care journey, which is very important, right? And, and I think acknowledging it first is the very first step. Um, 
in a way, I, I use this word loosely, luckily, but you did see that there were others that were also experiencing similar symptoms um, to which, of course, when you guys are sharing with one another, this is why it's important that we connect with others in the field is because now you realize this isn't just me, right? There are others that are feeling the same way. And I have to ask, Mohammed, when you and others begin to take it a, a, a take take it a step further and seek out medical assistance is this something provided by the company that you're working for or was this something independent that you uh you know you and the rest that were looking for medical support or assistance did upon yourselves or took upon yourselves it was completely independent we had to fight to get um, measures to help us in dealing with our stressful job. Um, in the beginning, we had um, a one-hour break during the whole day. We worked nine hours, one-hour break. And we had strict break times, like you only take your breaks at a certain time of the day. And if there are a certain amount of people on the call, you cannot get out if there are less than 10 people, um, for instance. You cannot take a break if there are people who has long calls and they're waiting to get their breaks. Um, you cannot take days off other than your days off until six months after starting working. You cannot take... Um, you cannot take your annuals when you request them. You need to wait until maybe they are approved or not. If they are not approved, you need to request them again. So um, we had a meeting regarding that with the um, with the management, and we told them the first demand that we need is to have flexibility in our breaks, to take a break whenever we want, and to increase the break time from 60 minutes to 90 minutes during the day. And um, we needed a professional psychologist or psychiatrist to be attending on the premises. Of course, the first two demands were accepted later in the second or third meeting. But the third demand, which is the psychologist or the, um, the, the psychologist or the psychiatrist, is not yet met until now. But they have provided allowance on the medical insurance in order for people to go outside and try and find somebody. Um, when we thought about doing this, because we were unable to deal with it, we were we didn't have any ideas on how to deal with it. So we started by thinking maybe if we give ourselves a bigger space, it's going to feel better. If we have flexibility in our breaks, I'm going to take that stressful call and I'm going to go out for a break. I'm going to get myself a drink and I'm going to calm down and then go back on the calls. That didn't happen before we requested it. It was like you, you're going to take that stressful call and you might take another stressful call or you might not. You might take a very, very vague call that you feel, oh, my God, how am I doing this after what I just went through? Mm -hmm. So these were the first measures that we um, we did. And then um, among ourselves, we started talking. We started, guys, um, we need to vent out 
we need to, when we're sitting together, we started venting out about what was happening in the calls. We started telling each other stories about the how difficult was that call, how hard was that call, and it started to work out um, because support system is very important. You not everybody has a support system back at home. Most of the uh, most of the people who are working on us, or working with us, they went home to an empty apartment and they just slept alone and they lived alone and some of them came from different cities and some of them had problems in their lives and um so we had i I for myself had a support system but others i had to be the support system for them with some of my other um colleagues who were also as senior as i am i mean it's a series of events, and it's such an amazing and incredible story, uh, Muhammad. And and first of all, I just want to acknowledge you for uh, for having shared that. I think that there are many stories in our career paths, in our lives in general, but in our career paths particularly, that that do make it or or become the tipping point in our career and it it goes one way or another uh i'd i'd like to think of it as when these challenges arise we have the options to do something about it as in you know try to be the difference that we'd like to see um or or for for others we become victims or they become the victims of those challenges um, to which it just means that, you know, that somebody else that perhaps goes through it may want to become a part of the solution um, and have the strength to do it because day in and day out with such uh, not just mental fatigue, but I think this is a word to highlight um, compassion fatigue, as you mentioned, that wasn't even in your vocabulary you know, at the moment, you didn't understand and it was acknowledged and accepted as this is what you're going through, you know, which uh, I think that allows one to cope with actually what is happening. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm no medical professional uh, whatsoever and, and have no idea. It'd be wonderful to expand on this topic, particularly for interpreters. But I, what I do want to highlight is that you come across the situation, you're affected by it, you do take the actions in order to to do the self-care part, which is very, very important. But you don't stop there. You continue on this path of making a difference and finding a solution for, for you potentially in the future but for others, because that's what's en- what ends up happening when we when we seek out solutions to some of the challenges that we come across is that we end up inevitably posing a solution for others that that are going to come after us. So you start having discussions with management, which are very important discussions, and you start making headway and making changes in the company um, that to this day, are still there, you said, right? Thanks to these conversations, are still there. The support group, um, you mentioned uh, that that you know it it, it might have started as, hey, let's just talk about things. Let's let's meet up afterwards and let's just kind of vent and you know share with each other what some of the challenging calls or or assignments were. That's important because, as you mentioned. Not everybody has that necessarily back at home. Not everybody can necessarily go back and talk about. Um, and if they do the connection, it's not the same as in when you share it with another colleague that fully understands, right? And that could potentially. Yes, that's correct. 
Yes. Yes. So I want to highlight those things because I think that those things are very important that sometimes we feel like we're alone in what we're going through. But once we reach out, we, we, we come to realize that others are going through the same thing as well. And so that's why it's so important to open up and speak up about our challenges as professionals, because there's others out there that are going through the same thing and need to hear this from others in the field that may end up necessarily, maybe not necessarily, you know, wanting to share or, or admitting, like you said, things like everyday stuff that you may not think about as being a result of something impactful, like you mentioned, loss of sleep, right? Headaches. These are things that can come for any reason, but you don't necessarily associate it with something called compassion fatigue as an interpreter and, that is doing these assignments. Yes. And actually, the first thing that we need to do about that is to understand that it is a process. It's not a matter of one day. Um one day you're living your life with a great deal of energy and enjoyment, and the next you wake up exhausted and devoid of any energy. Um, you're tired, both physical and emotion. Um, this is what's called actually compassion fatigue. It is um, it is a symptom. It's it's not a symptom. It's a um, it's a disease and it's an illness and it is what we call pre depression, um, taking weeks and a lot of weeks and years to surface sometimes um it is you, you can call that it is a chronic clouding of caring you're you're caring about a lot of things you're caring about these people you're um you're interpreting for you're caring about yourself you're caring about the others in your life your family and then um all of a sudden something very bad happens in your life and you realize oh my god i'm going to have to wake up and go to work today again and during that time at work you give compassion to all of these people so you start wearing out you start having inability to do that anymore and um there are things that we need to do um in order for us to try and avoid something like that when we start feeling something like this we have to take a time out we have to discuss the, the issue with ourselves if we have a big mental capacity, if we have an enough mental capacity to understand, come on, um, I've been like this, now I'm like that, I don't like this, I have to identify what's important to me. Um, it's better to find somebody to talk to, understand that the pain is normal, and start having a schedule, exercise schedule, timeout schedule, sleep schedule. Because you're sleep deprived too. You have insomnia because of what's happening. And um, things, other things that we need to stop doing, we have to stop. The first thing that we think of when we have this compassion fatigue or the fatigue from the things that we're doing every day, from giving care, from taking care of others, from providing compassion to others, is we're going to think that, come on, I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to get a new job. No, you need to understand that you are going to find these issues in all the other jobs that you're going to have. You might face similar issues. You, you will have to stop blaming others. It's not the, uh, the problem. It's not their problem that you are um, not dealing with this well. It's not their problem if you're not breathing. 
if you, it's not their problem that you're working very long time and we're during this during these long hours you're working very hard and you're not taking breaks for yourself you need to do that you need to stop neglecting your own needs and interests i love that it's it's a it's a great point to make especially as interpreters we enter for the most part um i'd like to believe with the intention of helping others and and we're so devoted to that uh to that mission that we forget to take care of ourselves that we forget to you know watch out for ourselves and our own well-being and so um super important topic i i very much appreciate you highlighting this and bringing it up and and i'm hoping that for those that are listening and can connect with something that Muhammad is sharing as far as symptoms were concerned, um, this is a real thing. And so I'm hoping that you are uh, taking notes and and um, really taking in what he is saying as far as how he and others that he was working with was were able to pull themselves out of this and it it did take intentional effort and i think that that's that's the most important part what you're saying is that even if you leave the job because you feel that it's too stressful the fact that you don't acknowledge and and try to do something about what you're going through and feeling doesn't mean that it's going to leave just because you leave the job right it's going to follow you and it may end up showing up later on somehow just because it was never uh, truly addressed. So thank you for having shared that, Mohammed. I, I want to move and change the, the topic a little bit now into present day because you went from starting out your interpreting career as an over-the-phone interpreter, and now you are doing other things that um, you know you're super excited about, and 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 I'm excited to share with everyone. So walk us through what ends up happening and what opportunities uh, you've been able to come across as a result of you know making your way into the interpreting profession. Well, back in the day when I started, uh, w- when I looked up interpretation, when I had the job. Um, the job posting and I saw the job posting and I thought about becoming an interpreter. Um, the, the first thing that came up into my Google search was a United Nations interpreter. Uh, I was astonished. Come on, can I be a United Nations interpreter? And I started, I started as just out and over the phone consecutive interpreter because there are two kinds of interpretation or three kinds actually um i started to be a consecutive interpreter i did that for seven years within one company um i stayed there i'm sorry for five years within one company i've been doing the whole interpretation for seven years and when i quit my job last october actually um the the 17th of october in 2021 which was the day like yesterday, but last year, um, I thought about, come on, let's try and make a new challenge. Why don't I try and see myself if I am going to be able to become a simultaneous interpreter? Being a simultaneous interpreter is going to be the first step to take me into becoming a, a United Nations interpreter. And actually, I ascended the stairs very quickly the ladder is huge, but I ascended there. I don't know 
maybe is it luck <laughs> or is it um, am I just have do, do I have the talent? And actually, when I looked it up, I found out that it is just like soccer. It is just like tennis. You're talented, then you're talented. You can do it, then you can do it. Um, even the people who are going to practice and they're going to try and be as good as the people who are talented. I'm sorry to say that, but you have to work very, very hard to acquire the ability to becoming a simultaneous interpreter. And I started my job, my first ever simultaneous interpretation job was um, through um, a website. It was for a college in Saudi Arabia. And they have brought this educational professor who is going to provide them with new methods of teaching and new methods of dealing with the students and stop using the books and stop using reading and stop using subjects. And people and students need to learn within their um, environment. They need to learn by um, by actions, not by learning, just listening to what you're saying. And it was a whole new experience. Come on, Mohammed, you're going to be a simultaneous interpretation for this professor. And I started. People were overwhelmed. People said that I was great. Come on, we want you for another session, for another session. And I worked with them for around eight weeks, um, two sessions a week. And um, I started thinking, I will try and apply for the certification of interpreters provided by the United Nations. It it was like um, it was something that's very far away from me, and I was um, stretching my hands to grab it. And all of a sudden, I found that I've acquired it. I've um, taken the test; everything is great. I am now certified. Um, I've started working for a company that's affiliated with the United Nations itself. I have interpreted over fifty nine conferences with the United Nations, UN Women. African Union, um, United Nations themselves, um, the group advisory meetings. Um, and right now, during this present, now I'm going to say it's in the future, I'm going to be hopefully interpreting the COP27, which is the biggest environmental conference during the year. Um, I'm, I'm excited from now. I'm, I'm sorry, I've started to be excited since I heard the news. Being like this and becoming where I am right now, it is not only something that I am thankful for, but it is something that I know how hard it was. And that's how I think. That's how I keep. That's what I tell keep. Uh, that's what I keep telling myself every day. You need to work. You need to improve. You need to find this course. You need to find that course. Um, and during that period, um, somebody offered me to get the training course of the um, Supreme Court of Ohio to become a certified court legal interpreter. And while doing all of these things together, the consecutive interpretation, the simultaneous interpretation, and I started that training. I have actually had the certificate. I, I actually was able to get that certificate now, and I'm certified by the Supreme Court of Ohio as a legal and court interpreter. So, indulging into all of this, you have to work. Nothing is going to happen to you if you just stayed there and remained the same you as you've been yesterday or as if you've been an hour ago. 
you need to change if you want something to change if you want to earn better money if you want to have a better life you need to change things yourself nothing nobody and nothing is going to change things for you i love that that is so true that continued uh progress and that continued the learning not just to uh, like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode the learning not just to learn and consume as much as we can but to actually put into practice and and you did much of that by means of stepping outside of your comfort zone and walking into something that you had no idea like you said you you saw it very far out in the distance but yet you headed it in its direction. And I mean, look at the opportunities that that's opened up for you. I'd like to ask you, Mohammed, if there is something that you could change in the industry, in the in the language profession industry, what would that be? Um, two things, actually. Um, people or interpreters sometimes think of themselves as communication specialists, or I'm sorry, linguistic specialists. They just think that all they need to do is to deliver words and receive words and make the people, these two people communicate linguistically. But you have to understand as an interpreter that you have two roles, that these roles um, as an interpreter, you need to work on and you need to work with in order for you to achieve the best interpretation that you will ever do. The first role is the cultural broker, which is most of the people don't do anymore. You need to let that person understand the, the culture of the other. If they are having a certain problem, if they're having a problem with um, a food or they're having a problem with dealing with a male or a female, um, if they're having a problem with staying in this room and not that room, if they're having a problem with the interpreter themselves, if the interpreter is not from the same country, you need to deliver that to the person who speaks English. You need to tell them, come on, that person, um, he has this cultural thing, and we need to respect that in order for them to feel comfortable. And also to be able to deliver the emotions of a person who is in distress. Sometimes people, um, you know, actually me, myself, I've been, um, I, I became a, annoyed a lot of times um, when I heard people asking for benefits and they don't want to work and come on, I deserve this and deserve that. But some of them are sincere and you need to make that sincerity and take it and make it reach out to the other person, make them feel that that person is truly in need. And um, a part of that is, like, you're a conduit, you, you, you need to be invisible, but you need to be there um, with your understanding of the situations that are happening, because um, these people need you. They brought you here not only to deliver these um, words, they have brought you here to deliver everything that is happening during a situation, even if they're the third party or a fourth party in the room. The second thing that I need to change about the industry is the pay rates and the management of the interpreters. Um, the pay rates are very low. Um, let me speak about Arabic and Spanish, because I know that Spanish is also facing the same problem. Arabic and Spanish are not considered exotic languages, languages anymore. 
they are regular languages that is being used every day. So we're going to bring that Spanish interpreter, we're going to bring that Arabic interpreter, and we're going to give them $5 an hour, $3.5 an hour, like some companies here in Egypt, without mentioning names. I've seen an offer saying that they are going to provide um, $3.5 an hour. When I thought, when I reached out to their client that they're vendoring for, that client actually pays $15 an hour. Come on. This is not realistic. Be realistic. Um, the management are also considering interpreters as if they are call center agents. They are not. Guys, they need enough break time. They need enough time for themselves to take, um, to take off during the year. They need to be able to vent out. Um, you, you should not treat them like that. And of course, back to the pay rate. Um, when you see the huge difference between the local companies and the other companies who are providing a much bigger pay rate, and when you when you actually communicate with these companies who are vendoring through local companies, um, hi, I'm an interpreter, I've been experienced for seven years, blah, 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 and I want to work with you, you find them giving you an offer that is much bigger than the local company offered you, despite that they're working for that client. So they are taking that money for themselves. Come on, you're not doing any job. You're not doing anything. I am the one who's interpreting. You just provided me with an opportunity. If you want to take money from me, you can take money as a signature bonus and as a signing bonus for the contract, but you shouldn't take money every day and every month. And that leads us to something else. Interpreters right now accept these rates. And this is very, very frustrating. Mm. Come on, guys. You are a very good interpreter. You have had this amount of years of experience. And you go and accept that rate. Someone like me, when I'm going to, I'm going to apply to work in that company, they're going to give me the same rate. Or they're going to make me write um, a consent not to say or not to mention what they're giving me and not to tell you what they're giving me because I'm an interpreter who is in a higher level and I'm earning more than you because you accepted that and you didn't negotiate. It's not because I accepted to take more than you. No, you accepted to take lesser pay because that's how you evaluated yourself. Come on, guys. You are great. Interpreters are doing a lot of hard um, a lot of hard work, you need to understand that um, accepting these payments and accepting this amount of money per hour or per um, or per minute or per day or anything at all, or some interpreters accept a cent per word in translation. This is really frustrating. When you do that, you're affecting everybody else because that's how the market will work. Because when they when they find you taking a dollar per hour and they know that I'm a much, much better interpreter who takes $15 per hour, they're going to hire you and they're going to fire you on the first mistake and the first occasion and bring somebody else who takes a $1 per hour and they're not going to hire me because they know that I'll be consistent, I'll take a higher pay, they'll never be able to fire me because I'm following all the rules and they're following all the guidelines. So... Guys, please respect yourself as an interpreter and respect the industry that you're working in. That's powerful. 
That's very powerful and very true. It does ultimately come down to what we're accepting as professionals. And it could become difficult, particularly when we're starting out and uh, wanting to accept the business or not knowing how to say no, uh, or even not just not, not sure how to advocate for ourselves. But uh, the more we listen to the stories of others in the field, the more we're connecting, the more that we're learning, um, the better we get. At, at just being able to know how to advocate for ourselves and ultimately advocate for the profession as well. Mohammed, as we get to the close of today's session, I'd like to ask you a couple of final things. And you've given us so much already in terms of recommendations, but is there anything uh, as a newbie, if someone that is starting out, particularly someone perhaps out in Egypt or, uh, you know, the Arabic language that is interested in, in beginning this journey, what would you recommend uh, as they begin in their new journey as an interpreting uh, professional or language professional? Um, don't believe the people who tell you, I'm going to give you a month course and that'll make you a good interpreter. Stay away from these people. They are actually taking your money and they're going to throw you there in the pool and you are, in a, are, in a, are unable to swim. Um, second thing, improve every day. Improve. Even if you're going to only learn one new word, improve. And that's going to take you to a very different level in the future. If you want to be an ambassador's interpreter, if you want to be a United Nations interpreter, even if you want to be a president's interpreter, you need to work on yourself because that will not happen on its own. And the third thing, don't freak out and um, take some time off. Take some time for yourself and develop interests outside of interpretation. You need to do that. You need to have something else to do. That's huge. Yes. Don't get so fixated on the interpretation piece that you don't consider other interests, particularly if they bring you that piece and, you know, the, the, uh, stepping away from your daily profession and thinking about that stuff because we could get so caught up and fixated on, you know, the, the, whether it be preparation or anything, you know, even the aftermath post assignment. Um, so that's very important too. Um, so also in the present day, um, I'm working with a company. They are very respectful to interpreters um, in, in a lot of matters. Um, first of all, the, something that makes me very relieved is that my direct manager is an ex-interpreter who understands my needs and who understands everything that I need and everything that I'm doing and the stress that I'm going through. And this is actually making everything much easier. Um the second thing that made me very enthusiastic about working in that company is that they think about you even from the first, the very first beginning. Um, I was with the interviewer and the interviewer, um, she saw me using that headset. It was a USB headset. Um, it met the requirements and everything was okay. She told me, Mohammed, your um, headset is okay. It is going to meet the requirements. But however, it's not healthy for you. It's going to make um, make you have health problems in your ear and in your jaws. 
when you use it for a long time. Even if you have been using it for a long time now and you are comfortable with it, you're going to notice that later. Um, so I went on and I bought this headset that I'm having right now. Um, it's a Razer headset. There are a lot of Razer headsets. It's all the same. It has all the same idea. Um, the padding is antibacterial. The padding is um, very soft. It is memory foam padding. I don't want that to be an advertisement or something, but it's a very good headset for interpreters. It's very light on your head. And it actually also has a very easy mute button where you can um, and you're muted and you can just pull that microphone up. You're muted. You don't need to press buttons. You don't need to search for buttons. And um, when she told me that I needed something healthier, I kept looking up and looking up. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of brands that has these healthy um, things to put on your ears for long times. But that is actually something that's very important for an interpreter to do. Do not use a headset that would make you uh, that would cause you extra stress and extra tiredness over your stress and at the end of the day you just take your headset and go to throw it away something else that's very important for interpreters um you need to get a headset that prevents you from hearing your own sound or your own voice while you're speaking because sometimes you get distracted by your own self so get a, um, a noise canceling headset that's going to help you a lot better Wow, that's incredible stuff. And for those that um, aren't watching the video, uh, what Muhammad did was raise the mi his his microphone piece up and it muted, and then he brought it back down, and you know he was able to we were able to hear him again. So uh, take a look at the video if you're listening to the podcast and you're unable uh, you know to visualize that. Just take a look at the video to see what he did. Thank you, Muhammad, for having shared that. Muhammad, it has been an absolute, absolute pleasure speaking with you. I very much appreciate the stories that you shared, your story in particular, as it relates to the profession. And I can only hope that it it gets to the ears of the people that really need to hear this and hear your recommendations and be inspired by your messages, be inspired by your story, and hopefully are out there uh, just making our profession much, much better and sharing and connecting with others as well, improving our profession, highlighting it by means of sharing our stories and connecting with one another. And you absolutely did that for us today. And I just want to thank you again for being here and being willing to share your story on this platform. I thank you so much, Maria. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.